On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, which launched the Reformation. And the first of Luther's theses, the first of his arguments against medieval Catholicism was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be a life of repentance. Luther saw repentance as a foundational doctrine which had been lost and denigrated by the church of his day. One wonders what Luther would think about the modern American church's view on this same subject. Many churches today hardly talk about repentance at all. For some churches, that is because they have replaced the doctrine of sin with sociology. And so instead of repentance, these churches preach social and political solutions. For other churches, they don't talk about repentance because they have adopted a notion of the gospel that detaches God's grace from repentance. Zane Hodges is representative of this view. He says, quote, Repentance facilitates faith in Christ, but the Bible does not teach that repentance is a requirement for eternal life, end quote. We'll assess uh, that statement today and find it wanting. But these churches say repentance is a nice idea, but it's really not necessary. It's, it's, it's a good thing to have, but, you know, the sinner's prayer is more important, so repentance is put on the back burner. And as a result, repentance is a concept that many churches have turned away from, and it's a subject that many professing Christians today don't really know much or think much about. But today as we continue our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, we're going to focus on repentance, and my prayer is we're going to get a sense of the biblical importance and meaning of this doctrine today as we look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And today we're going to see three points. First, we'll see the call to repent, then we'll see the need to repent, and last, we'll see the urgency to repent. We've got a Bible turned to Matthew chapter 3. Let's start with our first point, which is the call to repent. We're still in the first part of the Gospel of Matthew, which runs through the middle of chapter 4. And this introductory section describes events which took place before Jesus began his ministry. So far in the first two chapters, we've seen events that took place very early in Jesus' life. But beginning today, we're going to see some events that took place some decades later, immediately before Jesus launched his ministry. We'll start today in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, which says, In those days. Well, in what days? Well, the days described by the preceding verse. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. It says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Last week we saw how it was that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, wound up living in Nazareth, which was, according to Luke's gospel, uh, the original hometown of Joseph and Mary. Last week's passage also described for us the death of King Herod I. I bring that up because history tells us that Herod died in 4 B.C. So that's a rough date for the events that we saw last week. And from that time, from 4 B.C., Jesus remained in Nazareth for decades. He was raised there. He grew up. He worked as a carpenter. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And all the time he was being prepared by the Father for the mission that would soon be his. And in those days, when Jesus lived in Nazareth, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us much about John, but Luke's gospel does. Luke chapter 1 tells us he was a distant relative of Jesus. 
that he was a few months older than Jesus. And Luke also gives us more information about precisely when John began preaching. Luke chapter 3 tells us that John the Baptist began preaching in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now history tells us Tiberius became emperor in Anno Domini 14, which would indicate that John began preaching around the year 29. And I bring that up so that you can see that about more than 30 years have passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But indeed, Jesus is still in Nazareth uh, as John began to preach in the Judean wilderness. Now, there are a lot of rocky desert areas around Judea. Verse 6 tells us that John's wilderness was close to the Jordan River, which suggests this was the wilderness in the area immediately opposite Judea on the east side of the Jordan. And from there, John preached. We're going to look at a summary of John's message in verse 2 in just a moment. But I want to look at what else Matthew tells us about John before we examine the content of his message. When you read the Gospels, you get the sense that the appearing of John the Baptist was a sudden event. One day, life was normal in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And the next, everyone was talking about this new strange figure who had emerged in the wilderness. But while John's emergence seemed like a sudden phenomenon, Matthew wants us to understand this was actually part of God's eternal plan. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Matthew says, For this, John, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The reference is to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah 40 is a passage in which God comforts Israel, who has suffered very much. And one of the ways that God comforts Israel is a voice speaks to the people from the wilderness, telling them to prepare themselves. And this voice uses a metaphor, speaking of a road. In the ancient world, when an important dignitary came to your town, a lot of preparation had to be made. And part of that preparation involved getting the road ready. Because when an important visitor came, there would be a big procession. And it wouldn't look very good if your road was in a lousy condition and something caused somebody to stumble in the procession. You wanted the procession to go off without a hitch. You wanted to make your road straight. That's how you would prepare. And here Israel is told to get ready to prepare themselves, metaphorically, to get a straight road together. Why? Because an important visitor is coming. Who is it? It's the Lord himself. God will visit his people. And now, 700 years later, Matthew says, this passage points to John the Baptist. John is the voice calling from the wilderness, telling Israel to prepare herself for a visit from the Lord. This leads to a really important conclusion. Even though Jesus isn't going to appear in our passage today, we learn something critically important about him here. Isaiah said a voice would tell Israel to prepare, and then the Lord would appear. And Matthew says the voice is John the Baptist. So who is to appear next? Isaiah says it's the Lord, and in Matthew we see who it is. It's Jesus. The conclusion is inescapable. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God, the Son. And Matthew's going to make this point again and again throughout, especially chapters 3 and 4. But what we see in verse 3 is John is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 40. But that's not all. John also fulfilled another prophetic role, which Matthew alludes to in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, 
and his food was locusts and wild honey. In ancient Israel, centuries before John the Baptist, prophets were known for dressing like wild men. In fact, in Zechariah 13, the Lord mocks some false prophets by saying that they put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. Prophets were so strongly associated with this sort of wild-looking dress that false prophets adopted this fashion style to try and look like the real deal. But John was no false prophet. Like the prophets of old, he just wore some crazy clothing, and he ate a pretty odd diet. He ate naturally grown honey and locusts, which are a type of grasshopper. Now, eating grasshopper might not sound very appetizing to us, but people in a lot of cultures eat grasshoppers. In fact, a few weeks ago, Sarah and I saw a guy on TV who was trying to get Americans to eat crickets. He said they've got a lot of protein, so maybe John was ahead of his time. But most Israelites in the first century would think about John's diet like most Americans in the 21st century. They would not find this appealing. But John's diet is the kind of diet you'd have to eat if you lived in the wilderness. See, in that day and age, people understood that to be God's prophet was to have a tough lifestyle, bereft of luxury. That's the exact opposite of much that happens in ministry in this country. I've known men who thought that to have credibility in ministry, they had to wear a designer suit all the time, or they had to drive a foreign expensive car. Who think that the trappings of worldly success indicate spiritual vitality. But that's not how John saw it, or indeed how Jesus saw it. For later in this book, in chapter 11, we read, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothings are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's politicians and worldly types who are marked by excessive luxury, not God's prophet. And so John's apparel and his lifestyle were consistent with his message. But I want to point out something else about John's clothing. In 2 Kings chapter 1, we're told that the prophet Elijah's trademark dress which he could be identified by simply when his clothing was cited, were a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, just like John. Now, this association with Elijah is significant because 400 years before John the Baptist, the prophet Malachi wrote his book. And some of the very last words that Malachi wrote were these in Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God said that Elijah would come again in some way before God moved in a definite and climactic way on the earth. Now, after Malachi wrote that, prophecy ceased. For centuries, God did not speak to Israel. We have Jewish writings from this period of silence which say things like, quote, the prophets have ceased to appear among the Israelites. But now, after centuries of silence, there's a new prophet, John the Baptist. He lives in the wilderness just like Elijah did, and he's dressed like Elijah. More than that, Jesus says later in this book, in chapter 17, verse 12, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus sees John the Baptist as an Elijah-like figure. 
who, as the Lord said, would come before God moved in this world in his long-prophesied decisive way. So I say all of that to, to try and convince you here that John is a hugely important prophetic figure who stands at the end of centuries of divine silence and who anticipates the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John preached. And what did he say? Well, later in this chapter, we're going to see a lengthy bit of John's teaching, but first we get just a summary in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to argue this is one of the, the very most important statements in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to show you why it's important before we talk about what it means. John says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've got a Bible, turn over just a page to chapter 4, verse 17. Here is Jesus' first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. Jesus is saying exactly what John said. There's continuity between John's message and Jesus' message. Now, if you've got a Bible, turn to chapter 10. Here, Jesus is sending his disciples out for the first time to preach throughout the countryside. And Jesus tells them, chapter 10, verse 7, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. What John preached is what Jesus preached is what the apostles preached. Moreover, it's what we're to proclaim, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, what did Jesus command his disciples to proclaim? That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we'll see that the right response to that message is to repent. That's what we're to tell the world today too. And we know that because this is what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Acts 2. In Acts 3, on Solomon's porch, Peter said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 11, when the apostles first heard that the Gentiles had come to faith, they said, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. In Acts 17, Paul proclaimed to the Greeks at Morris Hill, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. In Acts 20, Paul summarized his preaching in Ephesus as testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see the continuity here. It's massive. It's really important. In the last century, there has been a really false and I think pernicious claim that says Jesus did not preach the same gospel that Paul preached. Friends, that is a lie. What Jesus was teaching in the Gospels is precisely what Peter and Paul are proclaiming in the book of Acts to both Jews and Gentiles. Moreover, we know this is a false claim because of comments made later in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.2. He says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul says that his instruction is 100% consistent with the words of Jesus. In other words, Paul and Jesus say the same thing. Or listen to Hebrews 2, which says, Our great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. Yes, Jesus preached the gospel, the same gospel preached by the apostles, the same gospel we are to proclaim. 
And Matthew's gospel shows us the core of that message was also preached by John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, people sometimes resist this line of reasoning because they say, well, you're talking a lot about repenting, but where is the believing? After all, the core of Reformation faith was the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where is the faith? And the answer is this. True faith and repentance travel together. The same Paul who told the Athenians that God commands all people everywhere to repent, one chapter earlier said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The same Peter who in Acts 2 said, repent and be baptized, preaches with the result that in Acts 4 we read, many of those who heard the word believed. And the same Jesus who said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, also said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The biblical command to repent implies the command to believe. And the biblical command to believe implies the command to repent. This is why these two terms are used basically interchangeably throughout the New Testament, because they are inextricably connected. And if we are unfamiliar with this truth, it is because American churches are content to often only quote the verses that explicitly speak of believing and faith, and seldom quote the verses that speak of repentance. But this is a disservice, because the texts I've quoted clearly show that biblical faith is repentant faith. And so we can see the importance of John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is a message which has indeed resonated down through the ages. But what does it mean? Well, there's two parts to this statement. First, there's a command. Repent. And then there's an explanation for this command, which is, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's start with the explanation. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, let's start with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. This phrase is found only in Matthew's gospel, but it is closely related to another phrase we find in the other gospels, the kingdom of God. Now, some teachers have claimed that these two terms refer to different things. But if you look up these expressions and see how they're used in the Bible, what you'll find is these phrases are interchangeable. Let me give you just one example of many. Matthew 13, 11. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Whereas Luke 8, 10 says, He said to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. It's the same quote, except at the end we have heaven or God. The terms are interchangeable. There is no difference in the New Testament between the kingdom of heaven in Matthew or the kingdom of God in the other Gospels. So why then do Mark and Luke consistently speak of the kingdom of God? And why does Matthew consistently speak of the kingdom of heaven? A lot of theories have been put forward. The truth is we don't know for sure. What we do know is this. What Jesus said about the kingdom in Aramaic, remember that was the language Jesus spoke, could legitimately be rendered in Greek by the gospel writers using either of these phrases. Matthew's preference for kingdom of heaven, I think, reflects the truth that the reign of God above is quite different than what's going on in this fallen world. The sphere of heaven stands in opposition to the sphere of this world. And Matthew says John the Baptist spoke about this kingdom. Well, what is the kingdom? Well, I don't know if you've ever done the study, but if you read the Gospels and look at all the times Jesus talks about kingdom, you'll see he refers to what seems to be a lot of different things. Sometimes it sounds like the church. Sometimes it sounds like our future hope. Sometimes it sounds like other things. It's more than, it's more than all of that. The, the big idea behind the kingdom is this. God reigns. God rules. 
But our fallen world resists God's rule. But God means to impose and restore his dominion over this fallen world. And so the kingdom of God is the collision, the outbreaking of God's heavenly rule here on earth. Now what we find in the Gospels is this doesn't look at all like what people expected it would. Right? Jews in the first century thought that when the Messiah came, when the kingdom came, Rome would be overthrown. Israel would miraculously become a superpower instantaneously. But the Gospels say, no, 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 the kingdom comes in a more subtle way. It grows slowly like the seed that becomes the mustard tree. It is an environment in which at first the people of God coexist among imposters who look almost indistinguishable. But eventually there will be a separation between the godly and the ungodly. What begins as slow and gradual ends with the instantaneous conquest of the world and the perpetual exercise of the global authority of God and his Christ. So that's the kingdom of God, God's rule colliding with this fallen world. And John says, that is at hand. Say, what's that mean? In Greek, this is a form of the verb engitso, which means to approach. Now, if you're like me, when you hear this quote, which is a famous quote, right? The kingdom of God or of heaven is at hand. You think, well, that means God's kingdom is coming. It's approaching. That's actually not what this says. If that is what John said, Matthew would have used the Greek present tense here. But Matthew does not use the present tense. He uses the perfect tense. And the Greek perfect tense indicates that things have happened already which have ongoing force. So John is not saying the kingdom is approaching. He is saying the kingdom has come near. It's happened, it has begun, and now it has ongoing force. It remains so. The kingdom has begun and continues. So what happened? How is it that the kingdom has begun? Well, the answer is this, because the king has come. Now, there are some churches today that teach that God's kingdom has not in any way yet come. They say God's kingdom is entirely future. I bring this up because one of the churches that makes this point most stridently is local to us. This is a, an area of hot contention theologically in our area. But John says that that is, an, uh, 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 John the Baptist would say that is incorrect. The kingdom is not all future because the event which has begun the collision of God's reign into this world has taken place. The kingdom has started because the Messiah has come. And indeed, much of what Jesus will say in this book about the kingdom we can see in, throughout the church age and in our own time today. With the first coming of Christ, the kingdom has commenced. And God's rule has begun to recapture this world. Now certainly in the future, the kingdom will come in its ultimate fullness, right? The, the kingdom is not here in its fullness yet. But the kingdom has begun. And so as a result of this truth, John says to his hearers, repent. Now what does it mean to repent? The Greek verb is metanoeo. Of course, we probably heard the noun form metanoia. When Christians talk about this word, usually what they do is they'll break it into two parts because this, this is a compound word made of two words put together. And they'll say, well, the first word, meta, means after, and the second part of the word, noeo, means to think. And so from this, it's often said that repentance is about us thinking in one way, and then something happens, and afterwards we think differently. So this is often said that repentance is defined as a change of mind. Now, certainly repentance does involve a change of mind. But I would tell you, first of all, it's a mistake to define a word, which is made up of two other words, by just defining those two words separately and mashing the definitions together. Think of the word butterfly. 
If we tried to define butterfly in this same way, we would ask, what is butter? It's a dairy product, right? And what is a fly? Well, it's an insect. So then we would say that a butterfly is a dairy insect, which would be profoundly wrong. Right? We don't define a word just by breaking down its constituent parts and mashing the definitions together. We define a word by examining its usage. And when we do that with repentance in the New Testament, we find there is more in view than simply a change of mind. I think this concept is well captured by what Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Repentance involves a turning. Previously, the Thessalonians had been pagans. They worshipped idols. They lived in unrepentant sin. But when they met Jesus, there was a turning. There was a change, not just a change in mind, as though our mind was somehow detached from our body or from our actions. No. A change in mind led to a change in life. They started worshipping Jesus. They obeyed him. Paul makes the same point to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says to the Corinthians, formerly your lives were characterized by this list of sins, which would have disqualified you from enjoying eternal life and the fullness of God's kingdom when it comes. But now your lives have changed. They have discontinued their former practices. They live differently because of the saving work of God in their lives. That is repentance. It is a renunciation of the old and a turning to something new. Now at this point, people often object and they'll say, well, come on, we can't repent perfectly. We can't attain sinless perfection in this life. This demand is onerous. Now I'd say that, that they're, they're right in part. Believers still sin. But the fact that believers still sin despite our salvation does not negate the repeated importance of repentance in the Bible. Neither should the fact that we will all still sin mean that somehow that means we have license to live however we want without consequence. Well, I can't be perfect, so I might as well just do whatever I want. No, that's nonsense. The Apostle John wrote this in 1 John 1.6. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Yes, we will still sin, but our lives as believers should not be what they used to be before we knew Christ. There should be a change of mind. There should be a recognition that our former patterns of sin were horrific and destructive. There should be a change of will. We shouldn't want to live like that anymore. And that should lead to a change of life. We won't live like that anymore. There should be some transformation. And yes, transformation can take time. Believing friends, we're not now what we will be, but we should not be what we were a year ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago. Yes, we will stumble and fall, sometimes badly. But what distinguishes the believer is that when we are confronted by God's word, we recognize our sin and we desire to turn again to the Lord. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And this is a reliable way to know where we are with this. 
if we're dealing with sin in our life and somebody comes to us and says, look, this is what God's word says about your sin. The believer's going to say, wow, like I hear Jesus' voice in this. I know I need to repent. Like I need to, I need to turn things around. But the unbeliever is going to hear God's word and say, I reject that. I don't want to hear that because I prefer my sin to what Jesus is saying. That's, a, that's a, in, in my pastoral experience, it's almost always how that goes. Friends, the Bible's clear. A true repentance, a true change of mind will impact how we live. And John the Baptist is going to make that very point in verse 8 of the text when he calls on people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance will manifest itself in our lives. And so what John says, which became the core of Jesus' teaching and the apostles' teaching, is this. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The king has come. God's project to restore and exert his rightful rule in this planet has begun. And in view of that, repent. Change your mind. Change your will. Change your life. Turn. Turn away from what you've been doing and turn towards something else. But what specifically did John want his hearers to turn away from? And what did he want them to turn towards? Well, that's what we see in our second point, which is the need to repent. John appeared in the wilderness and he began preaching. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's a massive response to John's preaching. From the cities to the farms, Jews came out by the droves to hear John. And when they heard him, they were moved to repent, and they would evidence their repentance by confessing their sins. And John would baptize them. I'm going to talk about the specific significance of John's baptism next week. But these verses tell us the first thing that people need to repent of. We need to repent of our sins. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And friends, we're all born as slaves to sin. Our first father, Adam, sinned. Genesis 5 tells us that after Adam sinned, he fathered a child in his own likeness after his own image. Adam transmitted his sinful fallen nature to his children, down to all of us through the ages except for Christ by the virgin birth. As David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying that from the very beginning of our lives, we are all sinners. We're sinners by nature. And then when we're born, we act out our nature. We become sinners by choice. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And until we come to Christ, all we do is sin. There's a rap song that says, all I do is win. No, this is all I do is sin until we come to Christ. We endlessly live serving our flesh, following the promptings of the fallen world around us, doing the bidding of Satan, rebelling against God, our true and good king. Ephesians 2 says this. This is the most horrendous description of the effect of the fall. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Sin was a cruel master over us. But we must repent of our sins. We've got to see sin as an evil master. Sin is a horrible, destructive thing. James 1 says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Ephesians 2 says, sin has made us objects of God's just wrath. And we've got to recognize that sin is something to be renounced. It is something to be fled. It is something to be warred against. And it is something to be killed. So yes, we must have a change of mind. 
formerly we all thought that sin was no big deal. But now that we know the truth about sin, we've got to change our mind, which should change our lives. We must turn from serving sin. We must turn to serving Christ, to wanting to resist and war against sin, to obeying Jesus. And initially, when we make this move for the first time, repenting of sin and turning to Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and He transforms us. And yes, this transformation is a gradual process. As we go through this life, as Luther said, our entire lives must be lives of repentance. We constantly find ourselves trapped in the dichotomy put up by John Owen. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to, de put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We continually turn from our sin by confessing it and killing it by the Spirit. And Romans 6 tells us how. We've got to remember that Jesus' death has freed us from the power of whatever sin is tempting us. We've got to believe that's true. And by faith, we've got to choose to resist that sin and yield to the leading of the Spirit. So we must repent of sin. What else must we repent of? Look at verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and we'll stop there. Judaism in the first century was a very divided faith. There were a number of different factions or parties within the religion. And the two most powerful parties were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll talk about them a lot throughout this book. In many ways, the Pharisees and Sadducees could not have been more different. They had significant theological differences. Their lifestyles were different. And the people they appealed to within Jerusalem were quite different. And these two groups were always at each other's throats might say they were like the Republicans and Democrats of the first century. And while the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, here it sounds like they cooperated in showing up at the site of John's ministry. What was this all about? Well, John's ministry was pretty popular, and it was attracting a lot of attention, including from Jerusalem. And so it wasn't long before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Religious Council of Jerusalem, would have taken an interest in John's activities. And Sanhedrin was comprised of both Pharisees and Sadducees. The Gospel of John chapter 1 tells us the Sanhedrin sent their operatives connected to both of these parties to investigate John. <clears throat> and as these Pharisees and Sadducees hung out by the Jordan watching John, John saw them. And John called out to them because he saw that their presence was out of place. They had no place in his ministry because they were unrepentant. Look at verse 7. He, John said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John exposes the Pharisees and the Sadducees as insincere frauds. They haven't come in repentance confessing their sins like the people being baptized. They are a brood of vipers. They are dangerous hypocrites who claim to be repentant but who actually aren't. And so John asks them, why have you come in unrepentance? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? What are you doing here? Unrepentant people are out of place in John's ministry. But John doesn't write them off. Instead, he gives them an exhortation. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the idea is this. Don't just claim to be repentant. Actually be repentant. You know, anybody can claim to be repentant. 
I've known people who were discovered in outrageous sin in church leadership. And the first thing they did when they were caught was they said, oh, I'm, I'm so repentant about all of this. And then the second thing they said was, well, this means we can pretend like none of this ever happened, right? This same pseudo-repentance is tragically common, and I would say this has exposed our faith to mockery in the world at large. In 1988, televangelist Jimmy Swaggart was caught in a sex scandal. He made a vague, emotional public statement about sin. He was suspended for all of three months. He was reinstated, and then he did it again. Similar situation happened more recently with Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavigian, who, by the way, was preaching a false message that said obedience is irrelevant, so it should have been no surprise when it was revealed in 2015 that he was in adultery. He left his first church. He repented. Within three months, he was hired by another church. He was there for six months until it came out he had more affairs which were unconfessed. He was fired. He repented. And then three years later, he founded a new church. And he's got tons of supporters online. And if you write on some of these posts saying, like, what is Tulian doing back in ministry? It's, it's usually young women. And they will shout you down saying, judge not lest you be judged. And Jesus tells us to forgive. And he repented what John the Baptist says here is really important. It's important for church leaders. It's important for church members. It's important for new converts. And it's this. Repentance bears fruit. There will be a manifestation of tangible evidence in our lives, beginning with the confession of sin, as we see in verse 6, but also through a transformed lifestyle. And friends, I would say it takes time to see whether somebody's lifestyle has changed, doesn't it? Three months? I mean, what is that, like 12 Sundays? That sounds like a sabbatical. But John doesn't just tell them to repent. He also exposes a sinful tendency they need to repent from, a presumptuous spirit in which these powerful people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, think, we don't need to repent. We're right with God already. Why do they think that? Well, first of all, because of their positions. We're Pharisees, you know. We're Sadducees. We must be right with God. Or even more foundationally, we're Jews. We're the children of Abraham. We don't need to repent. We're in a covenant with God. Jesus encountered the same presumptuous response to his message in John 8, to which he responded basically, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be more like Abraham who rejoiced at the prospect of seeing my coming. And here John makes a similar point. He says, don't think that just because you're Jewish, just because you're the physical descendants of Abraham, that makes you right with God. And then John says something that would have really made them mad. He says God could make descendants for Abraham out of these stones in the river. Physical descent from Abraham is not particularly impressive in God's estimation. It doesn't commend you to God. What commends you to God is repentant faith. For Galatians 3 says the real descendants of Abraham are those who are of faith. But here we see another reason that John's audience and that people down through the ages need to repent, which is false sources of hope. John Calvin remarked that the human heart is an idol factory. People are constantly manufacturing something to trust in other than Jesus. Maybe we put great value on our ethnic identity, like the Pharisees and Sadducees did here, imagining that the most important thing about us, the thing that commends us to God and man, is our ethnicity. But our ethnicity does not commend us to God. For Revelation 5 says, Christ's blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Still others believe that their politics commend them to God. A great many Americans fall into this category because our culture is so confused about the gospel and politics. 
And this is very much like the Pharisees and Sadducees who believed that their party membership commended them to God. But they were wrong. We're going to see in this book, Jesus finds lots to say against both of these parties. Jesus doesn't show up and say, well, you know, I think the Pharisees are a little bit better, so I'm going to hang out with them. No. Jesus comes as himself, proclaiming the gospel, and he says, align yourself with me, not with them. Many people trust in other things. Maybe our bank account, or our stock portfolio, or our good reputation in the community, or our good works, or whatever. We are so quick to want to entrust ourselves and our futures to anything other than Jesus. But friends, in the end, we must be like the Thessalonians. We must repent. We must turn from our idols to serve the living God. In the end, our hope must be in Jesus, whom Acts 4.12 is the only name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14, no one comes to the Father but by me. Friends, only Jesus can commend us to God. And so we see here that each of us has a need to repent. We must repent of our sins. We must repent of our false sources of hope. We must turn from the lifestyles that we used to live. And we must turn to Jesus in faith. And our need to repent is an urgent need. And that's what we see in our last point, the urgency to repent. John told his crowd to repent. John told the Pharisees and the Sadducees to repent. And now he tells them it's an urgent need. Look at verse 10. He says, even now... The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The idea is simple. The kingdom has drawn near. God has begun to assert his rule on the earth. So you'd best deal with him quickly. John says it's like being a tree in the forest. I know we can't imagine what it would be like to be a tree, but, but try. And you see, a lumberjack comes and he sets his axe down at your base. You know your time is short. And John says what's going to happen is that God, the one wielding this axe, is going to examine the trees. And what's he say he's looking for? Fruit. The fruit of repentance that John just talked about. And whatever does not bear that, tr bear that fruit, whatever does not truly repent, whoever's repentance is only claimed but not lived, will fall under God's judgment, John says. They will be cut down and cast into the fire. It's a reference to hell. Now, I know the doctrine of hell is a doctrine that makes us uncomfortable. And it should. It is a frightful and a horrific thing to think about. But even though this is a doctrine that makes us squirm, we've got to recognize hell is something the Bible talks about. And it's something the Gospel of Matthew says a lot about. And so while we might not want to hear about hell, we find in this book that Jesus constantly warns about hell. And so we too must think about and warn about hell. Because our agenda must be Jesus' agenda. And because the temptation to minimize or redefine the doctrine of hell is just so dangerous. Never forget, friends, the first lie in world history was the serpent denying the doctrine of God's judgment. Friends, repentance is a heaven or hell issue. John makes it very plain here. And in case we missed it, he's going to say it again before the end of this passage. But before he does, he's going to make something else a bit clearer. In this passage so far, we've seen that we need to turn from our sin and from false sources of hope. But who are, do we, who are we to turn towards? Well, I've told you the answer is Jesus, and we know that because we know how the book ends, and we know what the rest of the Bible says. But John has not yet said that in his sermon. But now in verse 11, John tells his followers, here's where you need to put your hope. Look at verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
John is just the voice in the wilderness. He's calling people to prepare themselves. He's baptizing people outwardly as a sign of their repentance. But God has not established John's ministry to be an end in itself. Rather, it points forward. It points to something else. It points to the coming of the Lord. And that's what John's talking about. One who is greater is coming. One who is so great, John says, I'm not fit to carry his sandals. Carry somebody's sandals is a pretty gross job. Pretty gross today with paved roads and air conditioning. It'd be even worse back then with people walking around in the dirt and in the hot sun. You get a low, low servant to carry your shoes. John says, someone's coming after me who is so much greater than I am, I'm not even worthy to be his lowest servant. Because John, God's prophet, the man chapter 11 will say is the greatest person yet born up to that point, is absolutely nothing in comparison to God appearing in the flesh. And that's where John points his hearers. Yes, repent. Yes, turn from your sin. But more than a turning from, there must be a turning to. Turn in faith to the one who is to come. Expect Jesus. Hope in Jesus. And John says this about Jesus in verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Old Testament promised Israel that a day of glory and deliverance was coming when God would pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people. Joel 2 says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ezekiel 36 likewise says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is what God promised to his people that one day new depths of repentance and cleansing and spiritual enablement would be unleashed. John could urge repentance and he could baptize as a sign outwardly of repentance, but one is coming after John who can change us on the inside, who did pour out the Spirit on Pentecost, who actually can take away our sin, who actually can make us a new creation. And so John tells his followers, that's where you've got to put your hope in Jesus. But John says more than that, Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. He also says that Jesus will baptize with fire. What's that mean? Well, some people have argued this is a picture of purification. The books of Malachi and 1 Peter speak of a refining fire. And so some people say that's what's in view here, a fire that burns away the believer's imperfection. But I'm not persuaded by that for two reasons. First, the term fire is used nine times in Matthew to speak of spiritual realities. And in the other eight, every reference to fire is unambiguously a reference to final condemnation. The second, the context here suggests otherwise. In verse 10, John has just said the unrepentant are like trees which will be cut down and consigned to hellfire. Look now at verse 12. He says, his, the one who is to come, that is Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now this is another metaphor, this time from farming. After harvesting his crop, the farmer would have to thresh it. He would drag a board with sharp blades underneath it over the crop to try and separate the grain from the chaff. But it wouldn't do the whole job. That was just a start. 
The second step in the process was he would take a winnowing fork, which is like a big fork, and he would use it to throw large amounts of grain into the air. And the wind would blow on it and separate the grain. The grain would fall straight to the ground, and the chaff, which was lighter, would be blown some distance away and could be gathered and burned. And John says, this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus has the winnowing fork in hand. He's going to do some separating. He will harvest his good grain and bring it into his barn, and the rest he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that metaphor is unquestionably a reference to hell when we compare it to some other things Jesus says in this book. So, the coming of the king, of Jesus, generates two consequences, two outcomes, two baptisms, John says. And every one of us will receive one of these two outcomes. Either you will be baptized by the Spirit, you will be made new, you will be taken with joy and prized into the Master's barn, his house, separated not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but ultimately separated from the very presence of sin. Or you will be baptized with fire. You will be separated from God and his people and cast into unquenchable fire forever. The choice could not be starker. And what is the difference between these two outcomes according to this passage? It's repentance. There is to be an urgency to this repentance because the king is here, John says. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. Don't delay. Don't mess around with this. Repent at once. So to conclude, John's message 2,000 years ago was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn from your life of sin and from every false source of hope and trust yourself in faith to Jesus. That was the message proclaimed by Jesus. It was the message proclaimed by the apostles. It is the message that we are to proclaim to our unbelieving friends and relatives and co-workers today. And it is the message that I have proclaimed to you today. So friends, if you have never come to Christ, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This was true 2,000 years ago. It's all the more true today that there is urgency in this command. There is urgency. Repent. If you have come to Christ, continue in repentance. For our entire lives are to be lives of repentance. Because Christ has come and because Christ is coming again very soon.